So if you're wondering what perhaps is maybe the most transformative thing that you can do over the course of your week, it is alluded to in that video where I believe they quote a statistic that 80% of people who come to church come by a personal invitation from somebody who's already going to church. And when you think about all the things that one can do in order to transform our society, perhaps it is this invitation that we might make to those that we know in our life uh, to come to church to be uh, included in the great community of those who would seek to follow Jesus. Perhaps that is very much the reality when it comes to how we can transform our world. So we're going to take a look at this uh, opportunity of invitation, which is perhaps the simplest, yet for some reason the most difficult thing that we find uh, being offered to us as the opportunity to transform our world. So we're going to take a look at invitation over the course of this, uh, these next two Sundays, this Sunday and next Sunday, with a wonderment around how can we become a more invitational community as we seek to reach out in our effort to love God and love neighbor. So to that end, I'd like to read a couple of passages of Scripture. The first that comes from the Gospel according to John, the third chapter, verses 1 through 10, and then from the Gospel of Luke. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? And then the second lesson is from Luke chapter 7 verses 18 through 23. The disciples of John the Baptist reported all these things to him, so John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O oh Lord, that as we wonder about how we can be the invitational community, we ask that these 
words to come will point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. So the story is told of a wealthy man who lost his dog. So upset over the loss of his dog that he decided to put an advertisement in the local newspaper announcing a $10,000 reward for anyone who found his dog. He sent in the ad along with the dog's picture, but the next day when the paper came out, there was no $10,000 reward ad for the dog. This upset the man greatly, so he drove down to the local newspaper office and asked, the ad, asked for the ad editor. I'm sorry, said the receptionist. He's not in today. Well, well, let me see the copy editor, and demanded the man. I'm sorry, sir, but he's not in today either. Well, then let me see the editor-in-chief, said the man. Well, I hate to tell you this, said the receptionist. She's not in today either. Well, well, is there anybody working here today? Actually, no, said the receptionist. They're all looking out for some dog. I don't suppose you have to be a dog owner to appreciate that story, though being a dog owner helps you to appreciate it even more. Dog owners, or should I say dog lovers, of which I count myself one, each have their story of the hundreds, perhaps thousands of dollars they have spent on their furry friends, or as they say, man's best friend, a a real dog lover. And I'm not trying to exclude cat lovers, or ferret lovers, or parrot lovers, or lizard lovers. It's just that I'm speaking from my own experience. Real dog lovers don't think dollars and cents when it comes to their four-legged friends. There is a deeply personal ascription of worth that happens between human and canine. Yet we live in a world where the determination of worth gets confused often with price tags. How much is that dog really worth? $10,000 in the eyes of the beholder, which is another way of saying priceless. The truth is, though, we throw price tags around all the time. Some star NFL player signs a contract for a bajillion dollars, and we wonder, is he really worth that? Some beautiful model gets seven figures for a photo shoot, and we say, is she really worth that? Some young person being humanly trafficked gets a couple hundred dollars for an hour in a cheap hotel room, and we say, good God, really, is that what we think she's worth? We live in a world of price tags. It makes me think of the story of the young college graduate interviewing for his first job at a firm in New York City. And as the interview came to a close, the human resources person asked the young graduate, now what what starting salary were you looking for? And the young graduate replied, oh, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $250,000 a year, depending on the benefits package. The interviewer said, well, what would you say to a package of uh, six weeks vacation, 14 paid holidays, full medical and dental, company matching retirement fund up to 50% of salary, and a company lease BMW every two years? The young graduate sat straight up in his chair and said, wow, are you kidding? And the interviewer replied, yeah, but you started it. (laughs) I suppose it is one of the perils of a free market society that too easily we associate value with price tag or we associate price tag with value. So it's interesting, isn't it, in one of our lessons this morning, John the Baptist, who has served as the forerunner and herald of the approaching Jesus, the one who baptized Jesus, 
begins to wonder if Jesus is really the guy whom Israel's been looking for, been waiting for, the one whom the prophets foretold. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus if he really is the Messiah or should they start looking for somebody else. And Jesus gives John this interesting answer. Tell John, he says, tell John, the blind are starting to see. The lame are beginning to walk. The lepers are being cleansed. The deaf are starting to hear. The dead are being raised. And the poor are hearing good news for them. It's an interesting catalog, isn't it? that Jesus recites. The blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, the poor. Jesus is hearkening back to the voice of the prophets who ascribe great value to these groups of people, these people that generally nobody really wants to have around. How do we know you're the Messiah, John asks. And Jesus says, well, look what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing to the price tax. We're switching up the price tax on the blind and the lame and the lepers and the deaf and the poor and even on the dead. It's another way of saying, I suppose, that Israel's Messiah has come to set a new value on human beings. Not just some human beings, but on all human beings. Jesus, the great price adjuster. Jesus, the great new appraiser in town. They say if you spell dog backwards, you still get man's best friend. And if Jesus, our best friend, tells you and you and you that you are priceless. And Jesus, our best friend, tells you, and you, and you, that everybody is priceless. That is the beginning premise of Jesus' ministry. Every single human soul is priceless. The blind, the deaf, the leper, the poor, the man in the black car, the old woman on the porch, the teenager in the cheap hotel room, the mother and children slipping across the border, the CEO on the top of the skyscraper, every single soul is priceless. Which explains maybe all of these conversations that Jesus has. You know, if the Gospels are anything, they are simply these transcripts of Jesus' conversations with people, all kinds of people. Jesus moves from town to town, and everywhere he seems to stop and have a conversation. On one page of the New Testament, Jesus moves up into Samaria, sort of a no-no place for Jews. But, but Jesus shows up in Samaria and has a conversation with a woman, another no-no, trying to draw water from a well. Jesus shows up across the border to the north and, and has a conversation with a panicked mother. Jesus shows up on the shore of Galilee and, and has a conversation with Peter, who just days before had double-crossed him good. Jesus bends at the feet of the tried and convicted adulteress and with her has a conversation. 
Jesus picks the 12, picks 12 men for his trek across Palestine. And for what reason? Oh, you know, just to have a conversation, a, a three-year conversation about everything under the sun, including the kingdom of heaven. And in our lesson, our other lesson, by cover of night, Jesus has a conversation with a Pharisee. Now today, when we hear in the church the word Pharisee, we hear things like stubborn opposition, we hear self-righteous prig, we hear enemy of Jesus, we hear clueless, heartless religious leader. That's the kind of things, right, we hear when we hear the word Pharisee. But what Jesus sees standing right in front of him is someone priceless. What Jesus has in the back of his mind is that lost sheep he keeps talking about, the one so precious that the good shepherd leaves the 99 for. Jesus is happy to have a conversation with this enemy because for Jesus, he isn't the enemy. He sees this price tag dangling upon him that this price has gone through the roof. And you can tell in the conversation still how far apart these men are. Jesus says one thing, Nicodemus doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. But that's okay because it's the conversation that matters. It's the price tag on this guy that matters. Man's best friend is talking to man's best friend. Because one conversation might lead to another conversation, might lead to another conversation, and before you know it, you've got a little relationship going, and who knows where that's going to end up. I love it that John, the gospel writer, tells us where this relationship goes, where this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus goes. Because later he tells us that it's Nicodemus who stands to defend Jesus before the tribunal. And it's Nicodemus who is, at the end of it all, it's Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who at the end of it all is there to bury Jesus. You never know where a conversation might go. It makes me think of a conversation partner I had many moons ago when I was in high school. I, it was with a guy whose name I will call John. He was a guy I knew since seventh grade. We were locker partners in, on the junior high football team, and we ended up sitting together, as it turned out, in the cafeteria when we were in high school. And John and I might have been as far away from each other as one could imagine. We were on different planets. I was a church kid, and John was, you know, so far from being a church kid, you couldn't imagine. Not only did he not believe in God, he had no affection for people of color. He had family in the KKK. He was a pretty angry guy. But as fate would have it, we got put together at the school cafeteria for a couple of years. And that led to these, uh, shall we call them, spirited conversations over the existence of God and the equality of peoples and races. I take no credit for these conversations because they were largely goaded by John and I always took the bait. And I take no pride, necessarily, in how I conducted myself in these conversations. But at the end of the day, neither of us seemed to budge from our positions, and neither of us budged from our affection for each other. But then came graduation, 
and off we went, never to see each other again. Fast forward 30 years, I make, my, I make a trip back to Detroit to attend my 30-year high school reunion. I know, hard to believe. <laughs> and, and you know, when you go to your reunion, you know, your 30-year reunion, your hope is to kind of, you know, catch up with some old friends, have some, you know, light and hearty, you know, chat, you know, do some yucks. So here am I at my 30-year reunion, and who comes walking over from the other side of the room but John? And he's got his finger pointing at me. <laughs> he's stabbing it in my direction as he walks toward me. Oh, really? Do I got to spend my high school reunion talking to this guy? I say to myself, here comes old John, though, boy, with those fingers pointing at me. And I wonder, oh dear, this is going to be the longest night of my life. And as he draws draw closer, I can see more clearly that he has tears in his eyes. And a couple of them leaking down his cheeks. So John approaches me with his finger in the air. And he says to me, I found him. I said, what do you mean? He said, I found Jesus. And the only reason I came to this reunion was because I hope I'd see you to tell you that. You never know where a conversation will go. They say the churches in North America are on the decline. The church attendance in the United States is dropping precipitously. They say that more and more people do not even consider themselves affiliated with any particular congregation. Sociologists and social scientists will give all sorts of guesses as to why that might be the case. But I'm wondering if it has something to do with our conversations or lack thereof. I'm wondering if somewhere along the way we have forgotten to examine the price tag. The price tag attached to every single human being. The value that Jesus seemed to appraise them with. Friend, family, enemy, stubborn, righteous, prig, voter for the wrong candidate, member of the wrong tribe. I wonder if we've lost the art of conversation, lost hope in where a conversation might go. We've been saying for a while that our vision and dream as a church is to become the most loving place in town. I might want to tweak that to say that wouldn't it be something if we were to become the most loving community in town, the most loving group of people who with all those whom Jesus so values, we might enjoy some loving and gracious conversation. Because you never know where a conversation might go. Conversation, relationship, relationship, invitation. Wendell Berry, the great poet and novelist said it this way, Community, 
I am beginning to understand, is made through a skill I've never learned or valued. The ability to pass time with people you do not and will not know well, talking about nothing in particular, with no end in mind, except to build trust, just to be sure of each other, just to be neighborly. A community, he concludes, is not something you have, like an iPhone or a breakfast nook. No, it is something you do, and you have to do it all the time.